Let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. We're studying through the revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter at a time, verse by verse. We're in chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11 this morning. The topic, Jesus, uh, excuse me, John sees 25 thrones being set in heaven and is given further revelation about the end times. The title of our message, End Game of Thrones. Father, thank you so much, Lord, for letting us be here. What a privilege it is. Uh, what a blessing it is. I'm constantly reminded, Lord, that you draw us together as your church, as your temple on the earth. You walk in our midst, Lord, as you promised, ministering to each heart. I pray that our hearts would be open, Lord, to your examination, to your encouragement this morning. As always, we want to learn about this wonderful text, but we also want, Lord, to uh, see application to our own lives today. And above all of that, Lord, even, we want to know that you are glorified in this text, in our words, in this place, in our lives. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. They're called war rooms or situation rooms. During the Second World War, a group of basement offices served as the center of Britain's war effort. They were known as the Cabinet War Rooms. I believe they're a museum now that you can visit. JFK created the White House Situation Room in 1961 in the basement of the West Wing. Heaven has a war room of sorts. The Apostle John sees a door standing open in heaven. He's taken up through it to witness the execution of Operation Seven-Year Great Tribulation. It's an unusual war room. Before God declares war, or we might say declares his wrath, the parties in heaven gather for worship. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, you'll be safe from the wrath of God. And number two, you'll be surrounded by the worship of God. Let's take a look at being safe in verse one. Now, this is a transition in the book. We're moving into a new section, so a review is in order. In verse 19 of chapter 1, Jesus provided us with the outline of his revelation. He said, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. Follow this outline and the, revelo uh, the revelation rather makes sense. And I submit to you, Anyone who ever teaches or refers to the revelation of Jesus Christ must follow this outline. It is Jesus's outline of the revelation he gave of himself to John. There is no other way to understand or outline the book. And why would you want to? I mean, this is an easy one. I mean, you know, if you were in school and, and somebody gave you this book and said, outline this, you think, wow, this is going to be hard. How do you outline something like this? And Jesus said, I'm going to give you the outline so you don't get confused. Chapter 1, verse 19 ought to be underlined, highlighted in your Bible. Chapter 1 was the things John had seen. He saw a vision of the risen Jesus. That is in the past. Chapters 2 and 3 were the things which are the churches on the earth during what we know as the church age. They are the present. We are in that time now. Chapters four through the end are the things which will take place after this. They are totally future. The great tribulation, everything after chapter four, until you get to the closing exhortations in chapter 22, it's the future. 
It hasn't happened yet. Of course, the bulk of this book is detailed description of the Great Tribulation. It occupies chapters 6 through 18, from the release of the four horsemen of the apocalypse in chapter 6 to Jesus returning on his great white steed in his second coming in chapter 19. Chapters 4 and 5, where we are now, reveal maneuvering in heaven prior to the launch of God's measured campaign of wrath. And as we approach them, we want to remember Jesus made the church a strong promise that we would not be left on the earth to experience the wrath of God. He said to the church of Philadelphia in chapter 3, verse 10, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. The words were carefully chosen by Jesus so that there could be no confusion. He will keep his church out of the entire period of global trouble. We won't be kept safe going through it. We will not be in it. The church is going to be removed from heaven excuse me, from earth to heaven, and chapter four therefore begins with a figure or a type of that removal. So let's read verse one. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. After the things of chapters one, two, and three, John looked and noticed a door standing open in heaven. It was a special door. We would call it a mystery door open just for John to be received into heaven before he saw the great tribulation. The first voice John heard back in chapter one was that of Jesus. Here, John compares Jesus' voice to a trumpet that preceded his being taken through the door into heaven. And so he sounded like a trumpet and it was therefore an announcement uh, uh, a great announcement of something that was happening, and that is bringing John to heaven. It all sounds very similar to the Apostle Paul's description of the church's resurrection and rapture in his letters to Corinth and Thessalonica. And so we say John is a type of the church removed from the earth before the great tribulation. Here's some things to ponder. The Apostle Peter likened the great tribulation to a thief in the night. The Apostle Paul told believers in Thessalonica that the great tribulation would not overtake us like a thief. And so the tribulation, the apostles say, it's like a thief in the night. It's going to come suddenly upon unaware people. But Paul says, but none of you, none of you in the church will be caught unawares. It won't overtake you. Paul sounded exactly like Jesus when he said this to the Thessalonians. God did not appoint us to wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's essentially what Jesus promised the church uh, in a shortened form. They agree. The words church or churches are used 20 times in the first three chapters, not at all as the great tribulation is described. Beginning in chapter four of the Revelation, the church is conspicuously absent from the earth. The church won't be seen again until we return with Jesus to end the Great Tribulation at Armageddon. All seven letters to the churches in the Revelation end with the familiar words, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We encounter a similar phrase during the seven-year tribulation, but it reads like this, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. Dropped is any mention of the churches. Finally, the New Testament teaches imminence. The Lord's coming for his church could occur any moment. No signs precede it. 
The only way for the rapture to be imminent is for it to happen before the great tribulation. Because once, actually the great tribulation, we'll see, it begins with the signing of a peace treaty between the man who will become the Antichrist and Israel. And so any rapture after that is predictable uh, and not imminent. So some, some people say, well, the church is going to be raptured, during, it's the pre-wrath rapture, before God's wrath is poured out during the last three and a half years. Well, then the rapture is not imminent because you'll see the signing of the peace treaty and know that the seven and a half years or seven years has begun. And so imminence uh, requires the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. Now, a lot of people say, well, those are just observations. That's circumstantial evidence. Do you know most people are convicted on circumstantial evidence? Because that's the kind of evidence there. And if you get enough circumstantial evidence, you can convict. But and on top of this, being that maybe, I think it's more than circumstantial, but Jesus promises the church that we won't be here. And then all of these things come under that as things that verify that. And so this typical rapture of John to heaven is consistent with the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. I believe he represents the experience of all of us believers of the church age before the day of God's wrath. Came across this bit of history in my research. The British government during World War II relocated citizens out of urban centers to locations where the risk of bombing attacks was low or non-existent. Called Operation Pied Piper, millions of people, most of them children, were shipped to rural areas in Britain and overseas to Canada, South Africa, Australia, and New Zealand and the United States. Almost three million people were evacuated during the first four days of the operation, making it the most significant and most concentrated evacuation in British history. Before declaring his wrath, the Lord will conduct a global evacuation and relocation of the church. In verses 2 through 11, we learn that we'll be surrounded by the worship of God. Ever seen those if you remember this memes on Facebook? They're in every thread. If you remember this, you're super old or whatever, you know. My favorite one, I, I like them. I, you know, that's what the internet is for, just stupid stuff. Uh, you guys want, those of you who want to be serious on the internet, that's fine. I, I'm not putting you down. It's just, but to me, the internet is to... You know, well, just follow me on, on Instagram and you'll see what the internet is for. Uh, one of my favorite memes, though, is the picture of the speakers at the drive-in theater. How many of you remember drive-in theaters, number one? And how many of you remember days before you tuned in your radio and they had a speaker stand there? Those speakers were about the size of those speakers right there. They weighed about 3,000 pounds. There's one on each side, and, and invariably, we always went to the baseline drive-in in San Bernardino, and you'd pull in, and you'd have to try your speaker, because, you know, you barely get it in the car, you hang it on the window, and then you'd hope it worked, you know, and, and it had a dial for volume, but it didn't really, that, that was just, it would just spin, you know, uh, and so, and so you get that, and the movie would start, and it would go, and so then you'd have to move, you'd see a bunch of cars moving all at once, you know, and stuff. And my favorite thing, this happened more than once, I swear, uh, you'd be, you'd, you know how the you'd cars would be in a row, and the car in front of you would turn on to, you know, to leave, they were going home early or whatever, the kids were asleep, and they would forget to take the radio out of their car, <laughs> or the speaker, rather, and they would just pull that thing off and just drive off with this speaker hanging on their, it was fantastic. Those were the days. That's when we had control over technology. 
and they didn't have control over us. But anyway, something else I vividly remember, the Cuban Missile Crisis. I was seven years old, and it seemed I, uh, certain I'd never see my eighth birthday. Khrushchev and Castro would disintegrate me while I ducked and covered under my desk at school. My teachers, my parents, my brothers, the news media, I, it's a wonder I didn't have a heart attack at age seven and a half. We were so scared of nuclear war. Somebody was going to push the proverbial button and we were all going to be petrified where we stood. Uh, and, and my dad, you know, yeah, Kennedy, he won't back down. He's going to nuke those Ruskies, you know, and I'm like, can't we all just get along? It was an early Rodney King moment for me, you know, I mean, just why do we have to nuke each other? Why do we hate the Russians? Why do they hate us? You know, as a kid, you know, you should, you should do something to shield your kids from tragic things like that. Kids, when you're seven years old and you, people tell you you're going to get, why do I get under my desk? Watch this picture of the nuclear blast. <laughs> That's why. These used to be people at Hiroshima. I mean, it's terrifying as a kid. It's a wonder I'm sane. Segway. A lot has been written about what went on in the aforementioned White House Situation Room during those tense days in October 1962. Of course, now we know, depending on your preference, either the X-Men or Ant-Man and the Wasp had a lot to do with the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? I don't remember anyone reporting that worship was the first priority in the sit-room. It is first and foremost in heaven. So verse 2 Immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Totally unproductive to be dogmatic about what John meant by in the spirit. The Apostle Paul is an I've been to heaven alumni. He said he was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And so only God knows the mechanics of taking Paul or John to heaven. Was John's body still on Patmos? kind of petrified, was he in a trance, and just his spirit, was he taken to heaven? We can't know, only God knows. But for purposes of the figure, we see him in heaven reporting on the events of the great tribulation. If repetition is something we ought to pay attention to, we note that the words throne or thrones occur 14 times in these 11 verses. There shouldn't be any uh, discussion about who is in control of the events that are about to take place or whether they can be thwarted. Because, uh, as we like to say, God is on the throne. We're not told directly, but the first person we see on his throne is God the Father. We know it is because he's going to be distinguished from God the Holy Spirit in this chapter and from Jesus in chapter 5. Verse 3, he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Commentators cannot definitively identify the jasper and the sardius. They're not absolutely sure what stones are being spoken of. And so we can't read anything much into them as symbols. Some of the guys, it's fun, they say, well, now we don't know what these stones represent, but here's the symbolism. Well, how, how do you know that if you don't even know what the stones are? So uh, we're not going to get into that. Uh, God the Father glows in his glory. And that shouldn't surprise us. We see that in the 
uh, appearance of the Lord to Moses. In fact, God glows so much that he's got an afterglow that comes onto Moses. Remember, his face glowed when he came down the mountain and then he put a veil over it because the glow was fading. It reminds me of the crucifix I had in my room as a child. How many of you ex-Catholics out there had a, sh- a glow-in-the-dark Jesus? Anybody? I'm s- I want to know. Anybody? Right on. Let's get together afterwards and commiserate. Big, and it had stuff in it. I never know. It came apart, the crucifix. And I don't know what, I think it had place for holy water. And so there was a couple of candles in there. Little tabernacle, you know. But it, it had a Jesus on it that glowed in the dark. And I used to go to bed at night under the watchful arms of a dead Jesus on the cross. I, I don't know what that means. I think it's probably idolatry. But anyway, it, it was important to me. If you took earth science, you met Roy G. Biv. Remember Roy? How many remember Roy G. Biv? Quite a few. It's that's how you remember the colors of the rainbow. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. Roy G. Biv. There was a song. I was going to learn it, but I'm not going to sing it. One commentator said of the rainbow, it is a reminder that God's mercy is as great as his majesty, that there will be no triumph of God's sovereignty at the expense of his mercy, The disasters portrayed in the following pages cannot be interpreted as meaning that God has forgotten his promise to Noah. Why so much green? Why an emerald rainbow? I looked at the meaning of colors in the Bible. There might be a few things we would agree upon, but again, it's mostly subjective. There isn't a list in the Bible of colors and what they symbolize. We futurists who take the Bible literally whenever possible too often make the exact same mistake non-literalists do. We insist on assigning symbolic meaning to everything. Sigmund Freud once famously admitted, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. And so a lot of the things John is going to see in heaven, those are what he sees in heaven. And not everything has a symbolic secondary meaning unless we can find some area of scripture that really seems to substantiate it. And and so um, I I do think we ought to get into the green-hued round rainbow. I mean, you know, that's that's obviously something that happens in heaven. Uh, And so if we want to represent the rainbow, that's the way to do it. Uh, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. Newsflash, I have changed my mind about who these guys are. Don't all leave at once. It's not a heresy. I used to think they were human beings, glorified human beings who represented the church, and they could be for sure. And if you take that position, okay. Who or what these guys are has nothing to do with believing in the church's pre-tribulation resurrection and rapture, doesn't have anything to do with premillennialism. Scholars agree that no one knows who or what these guys are because we are never told who they are. And so any position you take, any position about who they are is your best guess from comparing scripture with scripture. Now, my new best guess uh, is that they are created supernatural beings, probably an order of angels. And I say that because God has supernatural beings around him quite often in the Bible when he's going to do things. The Old Testament describes what some call a divine council or a divine assembly of supernatural beings that appear with God in heaven, subordinate to him, 
but with him nonetheless. Psalm 82 verse one says, God takes his stand in the divine assembly. Among the divine beings, he renders judgment. Psalm 89 in the form of a question, who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings in the council of holy ones, God is greatly feared. One translation of Deuteronomy 32 verse eight reads, when the high God gave the nations their stake, gave them their place on earth, he put each of the peoples within boundaries under the care of divine guardians. And so it would seem that at different points in the Bible, we read about a, an assembly or a council or a college, whatever you wanna call it, of supernatural beings that are seated in heaven, subordinate to the Lord. But aren't these 24 called elders and didn't they have crowns and white robes? Well, elder is a general title for leaders, not just in the church. There are many other situations in the world in which people are called elders. It's not unique to the church. And there's nothing in the Bible to prove that white robes and crowns are unique to believers. Though for sure we will have white robes that we adorn. Uh, we'll learn about that in Revelation 19 and that we have crowns to throw at Jesus. Uh, there's nothing to say that other beings don't as well. One of the commentaries gave two solid reasons to think they are probably not glorified humans. First, he says throughout the Revelation they are distinguished from the saints. And second, they are seated on their thrones already, but humans will not be positioned until some point in the future when we rule and reign with Jesus on the earth. And so it makes more biblical sense that these thrones are occupied by some type of divine council or assembly that God convenes. Uh, there are arguments that say that there are the church gathered in heaven or that there are 12 apostles and the 12 uh, tribes, there's a lot, but it's all speculation because we're not really told. And the most biblical answer seems to be that they are supernatural beings who are there to aid the Lord in his conquest of the earth. And so verse five, and from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, voices, seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Lightning and thunder are typical of a storm. The storm of biblical proportions, the storm of the centuries, the perfecting storm is going to break out upon the globe. There were also voices. There's a scene in the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring portraying voices in a storm. The nine members of the fellowship are attempting to climb Mount Caradras. A diabolical snowstorm breaks upon them. They discern a fell voice in the storm. It's the voice of their enemy, the white wizard, Saruman. The voices in the storm of God's wrath are not fell, but full of compassion as God calls upon mankind to repent of their sin and be saved. One of the major themes to remember about Revelation is that it is a time of grace that God is reaching out to save. Yes, it's severe, but it's not as severe as spending eternity in hell. And so I say this not so flippantly, but what's a great earthquake here or there if people will turn to the Lord rather than remain in their sins? You're gonna see the Lord calling to men through two incredible human witnesses. They'll appear in chapter 11 preaching the gospel with power for 1,260 days. And for that three and a half year period of time, they are indestructible, untouchable, doing miracles. We will see God calling to men through 144 Jewish, or 1,000 rather, Jewish evangelists. They too are sealed to serve and then sent out as God's voices. 
In chapter 14, an angel flies through the atmospheric heavens having the everlasting gospel to preach to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people who dwell on the earth. You know, when you hear the jets coming, isn't that great? You want to get outside and think, man, the sound of freedom. My son and I were talking about how terrifying must it be in a time of war to hear that sound and think, well, I've got maybe three seconds to get my life right because uh, I'm being bombed. I mean, it's, it can be terrifying. I don't know if this angel is going to make a jet-like sound, but he's going to be flying through the atmospheric heavens proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ so that no one can say they didn't hear. You know, a lot of people think that in the church age, we, you know, that the Lord can't come until the gospel reaches every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Uh, though that's a goal that we should shoot for that, the, the whole world is going to hear the gospel in the great tribulation. That's what that scripture is all about. The Lord is coming imminently for us, and don't let anybody try and talk you out of that. We've discussed the seven spirits of God several times in our studies already. It's a descriptive way to recognize the perfect work of God the Holy Spirit. His presence in this scene is represented as seven lamps of fire burning before the throne. Now, this is interesting. Uh, I hadn't really thought about this for a long time. The Holy Spirit is always invisible until he is represented. At the baptism of Jesus, he comes upon the Lord, but he's represented in the form of a dove. Jesus likened the Holy Spirit to wind when he was talking to Nicodemus. At the church's birth, the Holy Spirit was represented by tongues of fire resting upon the believers gathered in the upper room. Oil, fire, water, breath, rain, wine, and clothing are all ways God the Holy Spirit is represented. When God the Holy Spirit is performing his perfect work, he brings glory to Jesus Christ. If he is at work in and through us, we will never bring attention to ourselves. We must remain invisible in our service. Now, I don't think it's ever happened here because we're the perfect church, but there, there, are, churches, there are churches in which people get sad or even offended because they're not recognized. They're not uh, honored. You sit down week after week in the chair that you've mapped out for yourself and your name is never on that chair. There's, there's no gold club for top tithing members, you know, that kind of thing. Pastor Gene never comes up and pats you on the back and says, way to go, saint. I love that. It's actually not true. I do that uh, to myself mostly, but no, I'm just kidding. But you know what I'm talking about. I mean, some people are more prone to that than others. And, and uh, you know, some people get super... Dis I, I've known people who've fallen away from the Lord because of that. And, and it's not to make fun of or to be, it's to be sad about, but the reality is the Holy, God, the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, doesn't want to call attention to himself. Doesn't want to have us say, hey, way to go, Holy Spirit. I want to give, he wants to give honor to Jesus. And so if no one ever recognizes you ever in your entire Christian career, you've accomplished your purpose. You've always been in the background, always serving the Lord, doing it as unto the Lord and not as unto men. And so be encouraged, be strengthened. If you see me coming with my hand ready to pat, run so that I won't rob you of the joy of the Lord. Verse six, before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. John reported what he saw. 
I think we take it as an accurate description with no symbolic ramblings about what the sea of glass-like crystal represents. Commentators can't even figure out what crystal means. So, how, I mean, I'm saying if you, unless there's a clear scriptural basis for it, it's just an observation. Now, verse six, in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. First living creature was like a lion, second like a calf, the third like a man, face like a man, and the fourth like a flying eagle as opposed to a non-flying eagle. Now, I just, <laughs> I find that funny. Creature is an unfortunate translation. The word means living ones. They resemble the cherubim that the prophet Ezekiel saw in his vision of God's throne. And their praise reminds us of the seraphim Isaiah saw in his vision of God's throne. Here's a non-exhaustive list of some supernatural beings we encounter in the Bible. Archangels, angels, seraphim, cherubim, hosts, and authorities. Then there's the devil and his fallen angels, principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age. And then there were wicked supernatural princes, at least in Persia and in Greece. John saw the living ones positioned one on either side, one behind, and one in front of God's throne. This does have something that we're reminded of in the Old Testament. In the book of Numbers, God told the nation of Israel how they were to set up camp around his presence in the wilderness, one on, one, uh, on either side, one behind, and one in front of his tabernacle. Each of the four sides were encamped by three of the 12 tribes. And in the interest of time, I'll just cut to the chase. Those tribes uh, put up a single standard for the main tribe that was represented. And those standards, those flags, had on them a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle, the same as these faces. And so now you say, oh, we're cooking with gas now. We've got, we've got something that's a real uh, you know, correlation to the Old Testament. And I think it's here, well, it's, I'm sure it's here for a million reasons, but there is a deliberate emphasis in chapter 6 through 18 on the nation of Israel. Yes, the tribulation comes upon all that dwell on the earth, but it is a time when God is specially dealing with his wayward people, Israel, and all living Israelites on earth will recognize Jesus as their Messiah and be saved by the end of those seven years. Tribulation or great tribulation are the popular titles about uh, for the great tribulation, but the prophet Jeremiah called it the time of Jacob's trouble and it was also called Daniel's 70th week to remind us that it has a lot to do with the nation of Israel. Here's another prophetic key. When people are talking to you about prophecy or listening to a message, ask them what they think about the nation of Israel as a separate people group that God is dealing with. And if they tell you that Israel, God is through with Israel and Israel is just now part of the church, they're off. And you'll never understand prophecy. It's, it's, it's as important as the Revelation outline in 119. It's just another key. That's why everybody is so confused about prophecy because they don't allow for God dealing with the nation of Israel again. And that's what he's going to do. Time of Jacob's trouble. Verse eight, the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night saying, holy, 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 Lord God almighty, who was and is and is to come. If you're a massive fan of some book series, you're either gonna be delighted or disappointed at how your beloved characters are portrayed 
on film. Ben Affleck is mostly panned as both Daredevil and Batman. He should probably just quit trying to be a superhero, I guess. Sometimes a studio reveals an actor at almost cast an iconic role who would have been just disastrous. Al Pacino, Jack Nicholson, were considered for the role of Han Solo. Can you imagine Jack Nicholson? Here's Honey! <laughs> or Al Pacino. Every time I get away from the Empire, they pull me back in! <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'm a big fan of the Godfather movies. They are a documentary in my family, so. <laughs> All the stereotypes in the Godfather movies are true. I'm here to tell you. So if you're an Italian-American and that offends you, I'm sorry, but I've got all of those people in my family, so. The four supers around the throne are perfectly cast. They seem monstrous and creepy to us, but we know that everything in heaven will be beautiful beyond our imagining. And so when we actually see them, we will be struck by their wonderful beauty. If you think modern worship choruses are too repetitious, they're preparing you for worship in heaven. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, is repeated and repeated and repeated and repeat and repeated. Over and over again. I snuck that in. Verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. Stop there for a minute. These angels have other responsibilities during the great tribulation, such as they release the four horsemen in chapter 6. When they're not on some particular assignment, they worship, giving glory and honor and thanks to God. Now, we have full immediate access to God's throne. Our default position in all things is to give him glory and honor and thanks. They are to be characteristic of our lives. And so whatever situation you're in, say right now, whatever your job, whatever high, whatever low, whatever disease, whatever illness, God says, you can, by the power of my spirit, do these three things. Bring glory to me, give me honor, and thanks. Uh, and so whatever situation you're in, God says it can bring him glory. You and I don't see that. I always think, you know, Lord, what would give you glory is for me to win the lottery. For me to drive a Ferrari. That would give you glory because I put a Christian bumper sticker on it. And people would say, look at that, I can own a Ferrari. You know, you know that kind of stuff. But to have an illness or to be bankrupt or out of, you know, whatever it is that's going on with COVID and all that, God says, no, you, you can give me glory. Are you willing to glorify me through this and thereby honor me so that people know that I'm, uh, what I'm capable of doing in a life, in, in, in the deep recesses of their heart? And will you thank me? And so just uh, things to work on. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the throne. Popular Christian band Casting Crowns is a cover band. The original Casting Crowns are those 24 elders. Casting of crowns indicates total submission to the authority of the one who sat on the throne. They are ready to do his bidding. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Heavy emphasis on creation because one of the things God is doing in the Great Tribulation is moving a quantum leap forward towards the restoration of his creation and the redemption of mankind. Man sinned in the garden, 
ruining God's creation. God immediately came up with his plan and, and uh, not came up with it, came out with his plan to uh, Adam and Eve, how he was going to restore creation and redeem man would involve him becoming a man and dying on the cross. The entire Bible is the unfolding of that story. And when you get to the great tribulation, it is a concentrated seven-year period, bam, 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 that moves a quantum leap forward in the Lord being finished with his program. After that, there's only a thousand years, the millennium, and then eternity. And so uh, that's why creation is going to be brought back to its original form and better. A shout from the Lord, a trumpet blast, a door open to heaven. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Therefore, we join with those at the end of the revelation who say, even so, Come, Lord Jesus, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.